Welcome to the Tom Nelson podcast. Today I have Lembit Opic here. Would you like to go ahead and just uh, introduce yourself to uh, get us started here? I'm Lembit Opic, Tom. Uh, my name comes from Estonia. My parents were born in uh, Northern Europe. They left because of the political situation in the 30s and 40s. And I was uh, born in Northern Ireland. Uh, it confused people, and some people put an apostrophe in my name, so it becomes Lembit Opek, but it's actually a 100% Estonian name. Uh, what I'm interested in is, well, philosophy, uh, science, uh, climatology, politics, but at the moment, what really occupies me is the science of climate. And what would you like to talk about today? Whatever you think I might be getting wrong, there's not much point in agreeing with each other, apart from the fact that we might surprise those who haven't been following these debates uh, with the, well, the logic of science in what I hope is still the age of reason. But what I'm really interested in for myself is where you challenge me and maybe I've got it wrong or where you challenge me and it turns out that you have. What uh, arguments do you think skeptics are using that are either working well or not working well right now? as you look at the landscape? The inference there is we're talking about global warming. Yes. Yep. Uh, well, uh, I can give you a big picture uh, answer to that, and then feel free to test any aspect of that answer. Fundamentally, the world seems to have been getting warmer since around 1850, maybe yep. a bit before then. And uh, it seems to me also unarguable that in the past, the world has done the same. By inference, it's a logical consequence of what we've just said, or I've said just said, that it's got colder in between. What that tells us is that there are cycles in the climate. It gets warmer, it gets colder, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. Fundamentally, I'm suggesting, and I believe, that uh, based on the scientific analysis that I've been involved in for 44 years, uh, that human beings don't make a very big impact on that. We must make some non-zero impact, but we're not really defining the wave. We are like ripples on the swell. And if I'm correct about that, the policy decisions which have been made mainly by the Western uh, societies are insanely self-harming and make almost no difference to the climate. Uh, yeah, I agree with everything you said there. Uh, what do you think is happening in uh, England uh, politically right now? What's happening in terms of cutting off the energy supply in the name of global warming? Or what's going to happen this winter? Well, I was hoping you could challenge my theory. No, I, I totally but... agree. I, I completely agree. Humans have an effect on the uh, on global warming, but it's not very big. So uh, we, we agree. In which case, I'll answer your question if I'm allowed okay. to ask you one too. Is that a deal? Sure, sure. The, the answer to your question, at least my answer to your question, is that we've got a government now which is in stasis. Perhaps even by the time this podcast is released, we may have a different uh, prime minister in the UK. I think that's unlikely. I think that this trust will carry on for a short time. But what we are seeing in the UK is a, is a tragic uh, case study in bad thinking. There is... Uh, 10.1% inflation rate in the UK at the moment. And all kinds of reasons are being 
efforts to justify that or to explain it to be more precise. In reality, it's because of our idiotic energy policies. We've got a trillion pounds worth, that's 1.2 billion uh, dollars worth of uh, gap under exactly where I'm mm -hmm. sitting now. Okay. We've got essentially unlimited uh, quantities of oil in the, uh, in the ground, uh, and we're just not using it. So number one, uh, we are therefore creating an almost artificial inflation rate here. Number two, we're actually being disingenuous in the UK because we import the very same things that I've just described. That's just exporting the emissions, if you want to put it that way, Tom. Uh, what should we do? We should start getting real, not counselling people who say the things that I'm saying. And if I'm wrong, then that should be proved by science, not by some suppression through some hyperbolic uh, emotional response. UK, you have enough fossil fuel reserves right there where you could be energy independent if you just tap those reserves. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, I would say, and this is my estimation, it's an informed guess, but uh, we've probably got 150 years worth of oil. And it depends how you do it. If you export it, then uh, it lasts a lot less. But 150 years worth of oil and at least 100 years worth of gas to make the UK completely self-sufficient. Okay, and how about coal in the UK? Do you have coal too? Uh, three, 400 years. Essentially, if yeah. you were to strip away the top of the UK, if you go down far enough, you'll find coal just about everywhere. And coal is our friend, as is CO2. First, very controversial point, Tom. Uh, the more CO2 there is in the atmosphere, the more people can eat. If you want to challenge me on that, you can do. Uh, because coal is something, well, you're shaking your head. Maybe you should do for the benefit of our no, listeners uh, and viewers. No, but, I am a, I'm a big fan of CO2. I think the more CO2, the better within reason. I think 800 ppm CO2 would be better for life on Earth, clearly, than 280 ppm CO2. So can I cast in my first of my questions to you then, Tom? Okay. Sure. Um, let's make it a one in three, because... At the end of the day, I'm I'm in the dock, uh, not you. Why do you think that CO2 is our friend when, as many people tell me, the overwhelming majority of governments and commentators and 97% of scientists uh, apparently uh, think that CO2 is a problem? Uh I think there's just this assumption that the earth is too hot and the weather is getting worse and CO2 is the climate control knob. There's all these assumptions made by people who don't know what they're talking about and they haven't taken the time to look at the evidence for themselves. And so I think almost everyone who is weighing in with an opinion on this does not know what they're talking about. And if uh, the people who know, the Richard Lindsons and the uh, Will Happers, et cetera, people who have really looked at this stuff, uh, realize that CO2 is a good thing. Uh, you and I are exhaling 40,000 ppm CO2 right now. It is not pollution. And we are far closer on Earth to having not enough CO2 than having too much CO2. And I've talked to people who grow uh, plants in a greenhouse and 1500 ppm CO2 is a, a, a nice level for uh, growing your plants in a greenhouse. And uh, there's this thing from Will Happer that you may have heard about how a growing cornfield has over 400 <laughs> 
parts per million um, in the morning, and then it's sucking down the CO2 so hard that it gets that number down to maybe 200 in just a few hours. So corn needs CO2, plants need CO2, uh, all of life depends on CO2. So this whole idea that we're trying to uh, get it out of the air and put it back in the ground where it belongs, it's just preposterous. It, it doesn't make any sense scientifically. That's that doesn't make you a neutral uh, interviewer, <laughs> but I enjoy your answer. <laughs> now I will answer three more questions before I ask you the next one. I know exactly what I'm going to ask you, by the way. Okay, let's see. What is the next question? Um, oh, I, just for my listeners, just this is a political question. What's the deal with the PMs in the UK? Can you just replace them every two weeks if you want? Or how does that work? <laughs> in the old days, Prime okay. Ministers used to last roughly 10 years. That was my political experience. And once okay. again, for your listeners and viewers, I was a member of parliament for 13 years. Uh, I started under Tony Blair. I wasn't with his party, but uh, he did uh, a fairly long stretch. And then I uh, finished my time under Gordon Brown. That was two prime ministers in 13 years. Now we <laughs> seem to have a new prime minister every couple of years. Uh, and it might be in less than 119 days. Why is that significant, Tom? That was the shortest serving period for any prime minister before Liz Truss. Uh, the difference is also that uh, that prime minister happened to die in office. Liz Truss's credibility has died in office oh, okay. already. Okay. But on the upside and peripherally to what we're discussing, Liz Truss has said that she was going to shelve some of the, in my view, crazy ecological policies, which are not based in science. But now he's backpacking on so much of this, um, and that might simply uh, put another nail, not just in the coffin of her career, but in the coffin of her party's chances of re-election. But there's just one last really big worry here. If the Labour Party get re-elected, they've got the same view about this stuff. They don't understand the science, and things get even worse. So. Uh, by dispatching uh, this bus, by dispatching the Conservatives, we could actually be making an even bigger eco-hole than we've got now. Okay. Uh, in your view, does the World Economic Forum have power in the UK, either over Liz Truss or the King or, or anybody else? Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I think that uh, King Charles, who I have massive respect for, by the way, he's a really impressive guy, and um, whatever people think about him, whether he was king or not, he would be a very significant uh, influence in, in world history and world politics. Uh, I just don't agree with his concerns about the environment. Um, when it comes to the WEF, there is a huge problem here. There is massive, massive vested interest. And I would say that that connects to what almost sounds like conspiracy theories. Uh, that there are huge economic interests in promoting what might be called the uh, the green economic agenda, things like a local agenda 21 and, and so forth, which if you want, I can explain, but uh, it might not be that interesting to go into the details. The WEF, like the United Nations, is fighting for its self-preservation. We know from Darwin that uh, organisms fight for their own survival. And if you set a certain uh, group of conditions for an organism to survive, it will seek to fulfill those. I think the WF has done that. I think the IPCC 
has done that. I think the United Nations has done that. And so therefore, Tom, I would say it's an intensely political movement. What frustrates me, even though I was a member of parliament in the past, but what frustrates me as a scientist more than a politician is that the age of reason seems to be replaced by the rage of unreason. And all of these groups, including the WF, capitalize on that. Do you want to talk about the media landscape over there? I'd like to uh, talk about uh, GB News, Talk TV, and BBC. What's happening over there about that? Uh, I'm guessing that you want me to give a more broad perspective rather than just say uh, an environmental uh, perspective. If that's the yeah. case, then let me tell you that in my view, we have big problems in the state side of uh, broadcasting, namely the BBC, and really a rather limited and rather disappointing reflection of exactly the same problem in the mainstream media, ITV, Sky News, uh, and some of the other ones. And we've got a nascent new agenda, which you might call the uncancelled culture in other uh, outlets. That would be Talk TV and GB News. Now, for those not familiar with these two new channels, they spotted an opportunity where the public were really pretty much turning off from what you might call a middle-class received view, which whatever the BBC says, in my opinion at least, as somebody who worked for the BBC for seven years, is nevertheless implicitly towing a party line. Why? Well, the BBC gets its money as uh, a tax-paid organisation. It's called the licence fee. It is basically tax, and they don't want to really annoy the government. Now, we can go into detail, which we probably haven't got time to do that now, but they have accepted, for example, two things. The, uh, the government's international uh, political agenda, which isn't all about the environment, and secondly, government's environmental agenda. Uh, what that means is that the public see things through a filter if they watch that channel. Sky News seems, in my view at least, to have done the same as so ITV. Now, Channel 4, which is also an established uh, outlet, has been less committed to that kind of, uh, I suppose, zeitgeist groupthink. But TV News particularly seems to have recognised that there are millions of people who actually want to hear it in a different way. And I happen to be uh, privileged to turn on uh, to TV uh, news and sometimes see myself uh, because I, I'm able to express the kind of views that we're discussing in this free thinking dialogue with you, Tom, on television. But that does not happen very much. Our conversation would be censored, in my view, on the BBC. And let me just, for the sake of fairness and so that we don't get sued, say to the BBC, if they want you and I to do this on BBC Live, I'm very happy to take up that, uh, that offer. I suspect they won't say yes. Okay. And then about uh, Talk TV, they're a competitor to GB News, right? They are a competitor to GB News. Uh, they're not doing as well as GB News, I have to say. Uh, essentially, they just don't seem to have quite the same momentum. That may be just a tactical problem. Maybe they've not got the right people. Maybe they don't really know what they want to be. GB News is absolutely clear 
about what it wants to be and what it wants to say. And to answer those two questions, it wants to be a genuinely free thinking uh, forum and it wants to say what people want to say. I feel, and I've been in the media business for over three decades now, I feel that many of the other mainstream outlets want you to say a certain thing or you get on once and then they find excuses not to have you on again. So I think it was Channel 4 that uh, a while back they had the great global warming swindle. They broadcast that. I think it's mind-blowing that that was on real TV there because it's uh, such solid skepticism. But maybe it couldn't happen again now in today's media landscape. Uh, Channel 4 wouldn't do that again, would they? Put that on there? Real TV, how dare you, Tom? I suggest that DB News is not real TV. I'll sue you for that. Okay, well. Okay, all right. You could. <laughs> You've got the right to say that. Uh, I think that Channel 4 has a nascent skepticism uh, in terms of this ridiculous, uh, it might be ridiculous obsession about CO2. But even they have to recognize that uh, there's a certain zeitgeist, to use that phrase again, where almost by nature, they have to think about whether they can get advertising, uh, if uh, advertising revenue, I mean, if they, uh, if they start saying that there is no climate emergency. That's one of the interesting things, Tom. So many people seem to think there is one. And I was asked by a green activist, well, if you're right, why do so many governments uh, and so many media outlets say that there is a climate crisis? I actually think that's a great triumph of uh, marketing. And the mainstream media outlets seem to have uh, coalesced into agreeing with that, regardless of the science. Uh, TV news and, to a lesser extent, talk TV, I think, have uh, walked a different path. Okay. Uh, how long have you been involved in the climate debate? Uh, you know, digging into it and looking at the, the facts. Is it a long time or not that long? Not very long, only 44 okay. years. 44, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually got interested in this in 1978 when I was uh, uh, studying. Uh, I was born in 1965, so I was 13 years old. My father was a nuclear physicist and mathematician, and my grandfather was an astronomer. And I started looking at, at that time, uh, the concerns about an, a, 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 an oncoming ice age. And in 1980, I published my first article, it was called Man's Mark, which suggested the idea of what's called snowball earth, which is uh, ice from the North Pole to the South Pole was maybe a bit slush. Uh, at the equator. In 2006, uh, my theory was proved right. I wish I'd copyrighted it. Maybe I'd be rich by now. Uh, but for 44 years, I've been following this policy, not because I've got a political agenda, but because it's just an interesting subject. One other point to make here, I would suggest that uh, a guy called Spente Afrenius in 1896, who first published uh, an article suggesting that CO2 was a major factor in, in global warming. He essentially uh, defined the beginning of uh, climatology. I think he was wrong in what he said, but for 1896, his work was really impressive. So I've been involved in this for roughly a third of the history of the science. Based on what he had, and we're talking about 130 years ago, mm. his work was really impressive. It's just wasn't right in my view but i think if sante was 
sitting with us now, he'd say, well, I made a contribution and based on what we've learned since then, uh, I would be willing to modify my views. Uh, in the same way that in medicine, uh, the person who, who realized the importance of washing your hands was actually committed to a lunatic asylum when he realized it. Because Fante was never accused of being a lunatic, lunatic and I wouldn't say he, he was, but I think that the, the great crime of the uh, warmest, the climate alarmist is to stay in 1896 when, when we are in 2022. So are you old enough to remember when Margaret Thatcher was involved in us in the climate debate? What do you remember yes. about that? Uh, two things. First of all, I, I met her and I was never a big fan of her. Uh, she was, by the time I met her, on her decline, let's say. But on the other side, she was very, very sharp in the late 70s, early 80s. Her views about climate, I don't want to make a big polemic speech about it because most people like me would despise a lot of what she did for the country. But her views about climate were based on very limited information. She vaguely thought that there was a problem, but in the same way that you might be concerned about whether I've got my tire pressures right in my car, it wasn't number one on her list, and I'm suspecting you don't care too much about my tire pressures either. She wasn't really a major player in this. This all began in the, uh, the mid-80s when the United Nations realized it could become really influential, and Margaret Thatcher had almost nothing to do with that. Uh, then jumping to the present, uh, what is your role right now, do you think, in the climate debate, or what are you doing to work on it? What do you want to see happen? Uh, those are three questions. My role is to uh, head up a group called Transport Reality in the UK, and we're currently opposing the ban on internal combustion engines, ICE, as they're called, on the basis that the only reason to ban uh, fossil fuel-powered vehicles is if CO2 is actually destroying our environment. And so that's a really big issue, because if you do ban uh, ICE vehicles in the UK, you pretty much ban our economy too. And goodness knows we've got enough trouble at the moment on that one. Uh, secondly, I'm slightly misinterpreting, no, reinterpreting your question. Uh, what do I see my role as being in the future? I hope I can create a rational uh, debate, rather like the one that we're having. I don't mind people disagreeing with me, but I want to create a platform where truly sincere uh, green uh, operatives and actually argue with pretty sincere scientists who don't agree with them, and we actually get the best answers. And then the third part of uh, my answer would be success looks like doing the right thing, not the histrionic thing, not the virtue signaling thing. And sometimes that's not very glamorous. Imagine, Tom, if we come to the conclusion that we're actually doing things pretty well. We need to use fossil fuels for another 50 years because that's maybe when we'll get to nuclear fusion as a fuel source. And ever since I was born, we've always been 30 years away from nuclear fusion as a power source. But maybe uh, in 50 years we can do it. In the meantime, as a good stopgap, fossil fuels are much more reliable than uh, renewables. Uh, not least because the Greens don't like nuclear and they don't like uh, Tidal, which is also fairly reliable. 
Um, I put all that together by saying I would like to be a force for reason. And I'd like to think that in the words, at least in the thoughts of my father, um, I'd rather be right than uh, look right, which means sometimes I'll change my view. And I'll say here on your podcast, if somebody can see a fault when I say that CO2 isn't really driving uh, climate change significantly, if somebody wants to contact me and say that um, I've got all this wrong and human beings are really the cause of our future climate catastrophe, then get in touch because your data is better than mine, then I'll say for you. Okay. Could you say the name of your group again? I didn't quite catch it earlier. Transport Reality. It's called Transport okay. Reality. The group I'm talking about is Transport Reality, but I'm actually trying to create a coalition of ideas where not just those who are skeptical about the human impact on climate change, but those who are completely convinced that human beings are damaging the climate, we can get together and have a scientific debate. That is what the age of reason is all about. And I think that we're a long way away from that at the moment in the NECO debate. So I, just today I was compiling this list of different climate skeptic organizations. And from your perspective, do you think those groups are working together much? Because I don't no. see that much. Uh, yeah. One of the great achievements uh, of the environmentalists is that they work together cohesively. Why? Because they have created a demon out of a trace gas called CO2. It might be surprising, not to you, but to some of our viewers and listeners, that CO2 is 0.04% of the atmosphere. That's one atom in every two and a half thousand. For those who drink, that's like putting a single gin into eight tons of tonic. And it's not even just that. That's all the human race can do in terms of contributing to CO2. Is this uh, a problem? Not really, because I don't think that the public should be expected to be scientific. It's not their fault that they don't understand an immensely technically complex issue. What I'm frustrated by is that the uh, catastrophist has tried to reduce the whole thing uh, to a single trace gas. Actually, Tom, the biggest uh, climate environment uh, concern, if you really are worried about greenhouse gases, is water vapor. Uh, it's actually a friend of ours again, uh, but it means that the great heat engine of the atmosphere depends on CO2, not on so it depends on H2O, not CO2. And the fact that I even make that mistake means that even I've been implicitly indoctrinated into hating CO2. Um, when it comes down to it, if we are successful, we'll have a rational debate where what I've said now could be proved wrong. But we can't even have the debate because of the ad hominem attacks against people like me and potentially against people like you, though I think you've you played a very great course. Okay. It does seem like debates are happening happening a little more now because there was the Moncton and Morano debate. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I have not seen it yet, but I think that actually happened. And Alex Epstein's been doing a little debating, and even I did a debate here on this on uh, my podcast. Uh, that's all really good. Do you think more of that's going to happen? I would love it. I think it will happen, and you're to to praise you for a moment. You're actually providing a genuine and honest forum where. People like me can express our views and the viewer, the listener can make the judgment. 
The reason it's happening more is because I think that the Green Agenda has slightly run out of their hypothesis, uh, emotive virtue signaling warnings, because the climate does what the climate does. And the general public are common sense led. And they would like, those of the general public who are interested in the science, they would like to get an objective view. Some, I think the very best thing that can happen is a debate where the very, very most impressive uh, climate catastrophists uh, are based up to the very best of those who think that human beings aren't changing the climate very much, or at least not in a damaging way. There was a good one of those, I think, in 2007 or so. They had a three-on-three -three debate. I don't know if you saw the Intelligence Squared debate. That was fantastic, but that that never happened again after that because I think these skeptics did such a good job that the Gavin Schmitz of the world are terrified to do that. But I, I hope more people step up from the other side and do that. Uh, once again, uh, coming from a scientific background, it's about whether you've got such a vested interest that you don't want to see a particular outcome uh, coming to pass mm -hmm. versus what science should do, which is to want to see the correct outcome coming to pass. Now, I think that what happened in that debate, and this is a very good debate, is that clearly the science showed that it is pretty much settled, that we're not wrecking the climate. And uh, more, more profoundly, it's right to be prudent in the use of limited resources if we want to be around for 10,000 years, but it's wrong to destroy mainly Western economies because China and Russia and India, they're not really going to do much about this. They see this opportunity too. Um, and so therefore we use uh, fossil fuels until we've got better alternatives. Tom, uh, why does this happen? Well, there is great vested interest as I've described before. And with the best will in the world, there are some people who are just simply ignorant, but powerful. I suppose my mission is to try to get those ignorant and powerful people to be less ignorant and use their power more responsibly when it comes to this issue. I don't have the quote right in front of me, but there, I just saw a quote from Bill Gates saying something about how it's great that uh, there's a fossil fuel shortage in Europe right now because that'll hasten the transition to green energy. And like it's for the greater good, uh, people have to suffer right now. I think, uh, of course, he's not going to suffer. It's going to be plenty warm in his house, I'm sure. I think it's pretty heartless for him to say something like that. Do you have any comments on that one? I won't chant about the heartlessness of it, but I will make two respectful uh, requests to Bill Gates. Bill, if you're serious about your concerns in terms of CO2, stop flying around the world. You can do it all online. Mm -hmm. And secondly, Bill, what is it that you have actually done to prove that CO2 is a driver, not a measure of uh, global warming or and cooling? By which I mean, it seems to me that uh, oceans degas when they're warm, and they they get rid of CO2 when they're warm, and they mm -hmm. take CO2 in when they cool. So, Bill. Answer those two questions and I'll take you seriously. Excellent. All right. So did you have another question for me you wanted to slip in here? Oh, yes. Yeah, you okay. just had six in a row. So I'm going to have two, yep. if that's okay. Sure. Uh, then, uh, and uh, I'm not going to play devil's advocate. So uh, I want to ask you these questions because I think the public might be asking them too. 
uh, Tom, why do 97% of the Earth climatologists think that there's a climate crisis, crisis and you don't? Well, I think this whole idea that there's a 97 consensus that there's a climate crisis is absolutely not true. That I would love to see if they would, someone were to survey all scientists on Earth and ask them, do you believe that we are currently experiencing a CO2-induced climate crisis, or even just a climate crisis? I think you would not get them to sign their names onto that because there is not a climate crisis. The I think the consensus is, is that CO2 is a greenhouse gas and that... Uh, all things being equal, if we emit more CO2, the earth is going to be at least slightly warmer. I think that's as far as it goes. And if you can define it that way, then I am in the consensus. And I'm a, overall, I'm a huge uh, skeptic, of course, of the climate crisis thing. So uh, it is kind of like this, uh, what do they call it, the telephone game with kids, where you have some sort of truth on one end and it gets repeated from one person to another until you get untruth at the other end. But anyway, this whole climate crisis thing, it's mind blowing that anybody actually believes in it. Because anybody who looks at the data, the actual data and what's going on right now, uh, you could not conclude that there's a climate crisis because the weather's not getting worse. Uh, hurricanes are not getting worse. Crop yields are getting way better. Uh, you look at any one, any piece of the data and there's nothing that's getting worse. And I've looked at all the data as far as I can for many years. Nothing is getting worse. You're shaking your head. Do you see something getting worse? Well, my second question. Okay. Pakistan, underwater, hurricanes hitting the uh, American uh, seaboard, uh, uh, tornadoes which are destroying towns, droughts, uh, floods in other parts of the world. Uh, a melting North Pole, a melting South Pole. How can you say what you just said? There, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, well, unpack the, it then. The, the whole idea is supposed to be that uh, bad weather is proof that the weather is getting worse and that CO2 causes bad weather. But as I always say on Twitter, bad weather has plan plagued mankind uh, every single year of uh, human history, as far as we know. So there's always going to be tornadoes and hurricanes and et cetera. Uh, whether, uh, there's going to be heat waves and there's going to be, it's going to get really cold. All of those things have happened. One thing I do like to read is uh, history books. Uh, and constantly people are complaining about how terrible the weather is and how they've never seen how bad the weather is right now. I'm seeing that constantly. You read about the, in the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, people can't, their mind is blown by how bad the weather is. So humans have always been... Uh, uh, overexcited about how bad the weather is. But the whole idea that it's getting worse, there's just no data for it. I'm asking for uh, people on Twitter all the time, show me the data where it's getting worse and it's just not. So it, yeah, a hurricane hit Florida, but tons of hurricanes have hit Florida. A uh, terrible hurricane hit Galveston. Uh, out of the top, uh, the deadliest cyclones in the world. If you look at that list of deadliest cyclones, of course, uh, the, uh, the really deadly ones happened a long time ago. And uh, the whole idea that a hurricane that kills uh, 10 or 20 people now proves that hurricanes are getting worse is just a non-starter. Any normal person, uh, rational person who looks at this data would not conclude there's a climate crisis. I don't know if I answered your question, but go ahead. Okay, I'm gonna do, a, I, I know that I just promised to ask two, but I'm gonna speak go for it. Ask okay. a 2B, yeah. uh, which is, so why is the Antarctic ice sheet melting? Um, it is not. Uh, it is not. Uh, it's interesting. There's a Halley station that was there that uh, they had to rebuild it, I believe, four different times because it kept uh, getting buried under snow. I think that's kind of an interesting one that we're supposed to think that the, yes, it's going away and uh, it's going to be ice free. But uh, that station keeps kept getting buried. and They had to keep rebuilding it. So there are some places 
where the ice is melting around the edges. And uh, Joe Bastardi is saying, and I am agreeing, that there's a lot of underwater volcanic activity that the warmest don't want us to know about. And I do think that a lot of the melting that uh, has been seen in certain areas in the Antarctic may have been caused by volcanic activity in the water nearby. But anyway, overall, uh, Arctic sea, our, Arctic sea ice is up since 2012, I believe. It does it's fluctuate. Up. It's up since 2012. Yeah, yep. I think it's down since 1979. But uh, of course, in the 1970s, we were in a global cooling scare. And uh, I think that the Arctic ice was at a, uh, a local high kind of uh, during the 70s. And it is down since then. But uh, it is up in the last 10 years, yep. as you know. I know that. <laughs> I still have to ask you the question. Good. All Talk right. To you, sir. Uh, let's see. What else do I have? Oh, by the way, um, the Antarctic ice is increasing by 80 yeah. gigatons, eight, eight, 80 billion tons a year. But Yeah, the um, ice is increasing. I mean, they've been talking about, oh, it's uh, the winds down there. That's the reason why it's increasing. But I think the actual temperatures, too, as far as I know, are not increasing in the Antarctic. I, I believe that's true. And um, um, I'm going to I'm going to cheat and yeah. just tell you um, I'm just going to like uh, be a turncoat here. Sure. Uh, in 2021, the Antarctic recorded its second coldest uh, six months in Antarctic uh, history in terms of human recording, and six mm -hmm. months of it also in one part was the coldest. But back go. to you, sir. Back, back to me. <laughs> uh, what What did I not ask you on this uh, podcast so far that I should have asked you, or what other points would you like to make? Uh, so two things that you might want to ask me. The first okay. one would be, um, why do I take a contrarian uh, view towards CO2 when it's clearly a greenhouse gas and it's clearly increased on the basis of human intervention? That is my question, yes. What is your answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways, the viewer might be skeptical because I framed the question myself. But that would be the question that I would ask myself uh, if I was in your position. Yeah. Uh, and the answer is technical. Uh, climatology is very complicated. It's like medicine. Uh, if you want to understand the physiology of the body, it's not just a, a one-sentence answer. But there's something called logarithmic decay. What that means in simple terms is that the more CO2 you put into the atmosphere, the less impact it has. Uh, not because it's a bad gas, it's just the way it is. Uh, essentially, CO2 makes its biggest impact up to about 20 or maybe 80 parts per million, which in non-technical terms means a tiny amount makes a very big difference. But then you put a huge amount in, it doesn't make much difference. I think probably the best way to uh, create an analogy on this one, Tom, is if you take a few vitamins and you're vitamin deficient, your body really thrives on it. If you take too many vitamins, as many people in the West do, you just, it just passes through your body. And it's not technically an exact analogy, but that's what CO2 does as well. Too much CO2, you get plant, plants growing a bit more, but it doesn't make much difference with all of the uh, radiative effects uh, with uh, infrared radiation has happened already i think uh, I, th 
Yeah, that sounds good. I Maybe think Will, too technical. I think Will Happer has compared it to painting a barn. If you start out at the barn, it's a brown and you take a red paint and put it on there. That first coat of red paint makes a big difference. The second coat makes some difference. But after you put on seven or eight coats, it doesn't make much difference anymore. I think that's a pretty good analogy to continuing to add CO2 after you have whatever, 700 ppm. It's not going to make that much more difference as you add more. Uh, that, that, that's, you're very, very kind to make it simple. <laughs> um, uh, I'm still searching for a way to explain this in a way which is intuitive, because you would tend to think if you double CO2, double the problem, but that just doesn't actually happen. And I think that your analogy is pretty good. CO2 is actually our friend. Uh, if if we go below 150 parts per million, that means 150 atoms in every million atoms in the atmosphere, everything dies. And that's a really bad place to be. We've been down to 180 parts per million not that long ago in geological history. We wouldn't be here if we'd gone below 150 parts per million. So it's actually our friend rather than our enemy. And just remember what I said before, water vapor is the main greenhouse gas. No one talks about it because we can't affect it. And it doesn't really, we can't really influence the the political agenda by saying we need less water vapor in the air. So I think you're right. If I was to summarize it in 10 seconds, it would be this. CO2 is a factor, but it's not the factor. It does more harm, more, sorry, it does more good than harm. Yeah, and I think it's CO2 is not just a little dangerous or not just a little helpful. I think it's a, a very, I think it's a lot helpful because it's not yeah. the climate control now, but in terms of uh, plant food, it's a big deal. I think Will Happer on my podcast may have said maybe 30% of the global wheel, uh, wheat yield increase in the last maybe 50 years may have been caused by the additional CO2. That it's a big deal for wheat yields that we have more CO2 out there helping the wheat to grow. And that's, a, of course, an extremely important thing that the global wheat crop, uh, that's uh, that's uh, very important. Go ahead. It's, it's not good for people who are allergic to wheat. And also to corn, which is doing very well. Uh, I yeah. actually grow corn in my own garden, just mm -hmm. outside where I'm talking to you now. Uh, but people need to recognize that even NASA, which buys into the uh, climate catastrophe agenda for its own reasons, has to admit that the world's got greener. Because if you actually look at the Earth from space, you can see that's mm -hmm. happened. Uh, and that's why I think CO2 is our friend. I do have a fun little thing. I just looked it up here. Uh, speaking of growing corn, um, there was some University of Iowa study possibly talking about what's the optimum uh, growing temperature for corn. And I have it in both Fahrenheit and centigrade. Do you happen to have any guesses as to what that number was? I think it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's 22 Celsius. Uh, 33.88 or a 93. Corn likes it really hot. I come from a corn growing family. And my dad, we would grow corn there, and he would say you could almost hear the corn grow when it's hot in the summer. Because 93 for Minnesota, 93 Fahrenheit, that's hot. And the corn loves it hot. So this whole idea that it's uh, we want the U.S. to be colder so we can grow corn, ridiculous. Uh, we want it to be warmer. We want to grow more corn. Like Marilyn Monroe, then uh, some like it hot. There you go. There you go. All right. Let's see. Got, On that note, uh, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, I want to you to ask me the second more difficult question. Yes, I, let, let's go ahead. You ask yourself that question, please. Well, you have to say it back to me. Okay. Limbit, right. what if you're wrong? Limbit, what if you're wrong? Well, I didn't expect that question. <laughs> if I'm wrong, then uh, we end up with runaway 
climate change, we end up like Venus, where realistically nothing on Earth can grow or live uh, because we'll have this insanely hot uh, temperature where lead melts on the surface. So there's a batch actuarial risk. There's a small non-zero risk that what I've just said to you is incorrect. But I've got a very simple answer to that. More than uh, being a politician, which I did enjoy up to a point. I'm a scientist and I love the, the process of science where we try to work out what this remarkable, extraordinary cosmos, which one day will be defined by human beings in a single grand unifying, unified theory does and can do. As a result of that, I think that uh, for two and a half thousand million years, which is roughly the length of time the atmosphere has been in its current composition before that it was different, uh, the Earth is self-regulated. Sometimes it's been very warm, uh, sometimes it's been very cold. Snowball Earth, the, the first article I wrote just said to you before, I was about that. But we always come back to liquid water. As long as there's liquid water, we can do, we can do business uh, as organisms. And my advice to those who are concerned about the climate crisis is, even if there is one, it won't happen fast. And adaptation is cheaper than mitigation use. You can't stop the climate from changing. And here's the biggest irony, Tom. Those who say that we can stop climate change are actually saying we can stop something which the Earth has been doing for billions of years. The Greens, not me, are the climate change deniers. Excellent. I would like to add that I think the uh, chances of us turning into Venus are actually zero because of CO2, not just close to zero, because we've run this experiment many times, right? Like it's uh, a little warming. Is that going to cause positive feedback and cause more and more warming until we become an uninhabitable fireball? I mean, we've done that experiment. The Earth has been way warmer than it is uh, for most of the last 600 million years, I think. And it hasn't run away. It gets warmer and gets colder. So I'm very confident we're not going to turn into, into Venus uh, because of our CO2 emissions. Anyway. If, if it does turn into Venus in a thousand years, will you give me a thousand dollars? I will. I'll give you two thousand dollars. Yes. Yep. So, <laughs> With yeah, interest. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's see. Anything <laughs> else? What else should we cover? <laughs> well, once again, I'm very happy to uh, answer any questions that your viewers want to raise through you because I would rather uh, uh, modify my position than adhere to a position which is defunct. So my, my request is that uh, your viewers get in touch with me through you. Two questions for you though. Why do you do this? Why do you pursue this agenda uh, here on, uh, on television? Yeah, I do it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one major reason is I just really enjoy it. I've been doing this for 15 plus years where just about every day I sit down and find out what's on Google News and see what claims are being made. And then I look up the data to see what the reality is. I just really do enjoy that. That's part of it. Another big part is that I just think it's so incredibly important because there's actual people's lives on the line here. And for a while, I thought it was just the lives of people uh, elsewhere that uh, people in poor countries, for example, uh, in Africa, I think it's absolutely evil that people think they're doing a favor for Africans by cutting back their access to fossil fuel. I think that is straight up evil. And right there, that would be worth uh, all the fighting I'm doing. I would totally do it just for that. But uh, now it's uh, spilling over everywhere in the world. 
and um, you're seeing it in Europe and, and everywhere. There's all sorts of bad, really bad things happening right now because of this, this hysteria. So I think it's extremely important to fight back and I'm spending a lot of time doing this. I just feel like I'm doing the right thing fighting a, a, against uh, the lies and the hysteria because there's so many real world implications. So I enjoy it and I, I think I'm doing the right thing. Which leads me to a second uh, slightly spontaneous thought. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I, I'm impressed by your, uh, your narrative, but I want to be right. If I can get either Oxford or Cambridge University to sponsor a debate between you and me, where one of us has to take the catastrophe agenda and the other takes the uh, uh, anthropogenic skeptic agenda, would you be up for that? I, I would be up for that, yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'd love to do that. I'd love to yeah. meet you in person. Yeah. So, viewers, if you're in Oxford or Cambridge, whoever comes first gets the gig. That's all I've got for you. <laughs> okay. All right. And then you can share. I'm going to put your uh, Twitter uh, handle in the show notes and any other links you have, we can put them in the show notes so people can get a hold of you afterwards. And uh, we'll go from there. It'd be my pleasure. Uh, really good to speak to you, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Okay. We'll talk to you next time.